My sister woke me up, said the planes are dropping things. That's the Japanese, they're dropping bombs. My dad went next door and convinced the people to get up out of bed. And as they did, the bullets went through their bed. To this day, the name Pearl Harbor gives me chills, or in Hawaii, they call it chicken skin. If any of you watched the Memorial Day program from Washington this year, you saw the tribute to December the 7th, 1941. It gave me chills. To this day, the name Pearl Harbor gives me chills, or in Hawaii, they call it chicken skin. So I get chicken skin all the time when I talk about Pearl Harbor. My father was a Navy man, career Navy. And we first moved to Hawaii in the early 1930s, when Hawaii was a foreign country. It was the territory of Hawaii. And it took me a long time to learn to not put TH behind Honolulu. Honolulu, Oahu, territory of Hawaii. It's very different then than what we know today. The flavor of many, many cultures was evident in the way the people dressed. It was considered the melting pot of the world. It was because of the large ethnic mix. Caucasian was in the minority. And as a school child in elementary school, I didn't know what Caucasian meant. And I imagine most of you at that age didn't know what a Caucasian was either. But I soon learned that that's what I was. The tallest buildings were the Aloha Tower and the giant pineapple over the Dole factory, which was just outside of Honolulu. The Dole pineapple is no longer. The Aloha Tower is still there. It's sort of dwarfed by the high rises. But it's still the same Aloha Tower. In those years, the only way you got to Hawaii was by Matson Line ships, the Lurleen, the Mariposa, the Monterey. They were beautiful ships of the time. It took five days to reach the islands, and you went in the lap of luxury as a general rule. When the Navy sent you, they sent you first class. In those days, they had first class and they had tourist class, and never the two should mix. Their Lurleen was our introduction to paradise. As the ship came close to Honolulu, a pilot boat would come out with a troupe of hula dancers that came on board and entertained by doing the hula. And if you looked over the side of the ship as you got close to Pearl Harbor, there were many heads young men, young boys, swimming. And they expected you to throw your coins over. And they dived for them. And they came up holding them in their mouths. Now, of course, that's a no-no, isn't it? You never put money in your mouth. But that was part of the attraction to arriving in Pearl Harbor. You walked down the gangplank, or the gangway, into the throngs of greeters. There was a smell of flowers in the air. It was just a wonderful odor. I can't describe it. It's not there anymore, but in, those, in the 30s and the early 40s, it was just wonderful. 
there were laymakers on, sitting on the ground. They would have a sheet or a blanket spread out with all the different flowers that they made the lei from. In Hawaii, they never put an S on the word lei. A lei is a lei. <laughs> and, they, and only the people from stateside would call them, oh, I got 20 lays or something like that, but it was only a lei. The beautiful garlands would adorn the necks. And sometimes you couldn't see the faces or couldn't see anything but the eyes because as they piled up, they were like that. What an introduction to a new home. There were coconut palms lining the streets in those days. They are no more. The coconut palms had to be taken down because of the danger to people who walked under the coconut palms. So you don't see very many coconut palms unless it's in a, a garden or something like that where nobody's going to get hit by them. The languages of many nations rang through the crowd. The dress was a mix of island style and Asian with a little bit of stateside here and there. Easy way to tell the nationality by the mode of dress. Not like that anymore. People dress any way they want to, usually moo-moos. I debated about wearing a moo-moo tonight, and everybody says, no, just put the flower in your hair. Moo-moo's a little much. They look more like nightgowns. <laughs> everyone was proud of their heritage, even in the 30s. And everybody lived together in harmony, which you didn't do in any place else but in Hawaii. There were street vendors of all kinds selling their wares. Some went by foot door to door. Some had old Ford trucks or they had push carts. Vegetables could be purchased without ever leaving your home. My favorite lunch was one of cone sushi. And it was nothing but a cone out of an egg wrap stuffed with the sushi rice and little bits of shrimp, cooked shrimp. I'm not the raw fish person. They sold for five cents. Many a time that was our lunch, was a cone sushi. Going to Pearl Harbor was an experience. It seemed so far away. And I'm sure it was just the same thing in Norfolk when you went to downtown Norfolk from Ocean View. It probably seemed like it was a long ways away. But it was, as you left the downtown area, you passed by rice paddies where you often saw the women knee-deep in water planting the rice. Nothing was built along the road out to Pearl Harbor. And if you've been out there now, under Nimitz Highway, it's nothing but buildings all the way. But in those days, it was a two-lane road. And at one side, on the water side, in 1941, they were building barracks there which ended up calling it Boys Town because that's where they bought the CB workers that were building the airports and the many things in Hawaii. And the local people just called it Boys Town because there was nothing but men that lived there. I do believe that Hawaii was where the stretch limo started. Even in the 30s, they had these big black limos. How they got around on some of those little streets, I'll never know. They still have big limos, but they're big white limos, and they're huge. I know I came in the airport one night late, 
and I had ordered a taxi, and it was this limo pulled up, and they said, well, they had gotten my call. I said, you can't get up the street where I live up in Hallicoa, up the hill. There's no way that limo's going to get up the street. He said, you're right there, lady. Let me see if I can find somebody else to take you. We left Hawaii in the late 30s, came back to California, and in 1940, my dad was again transferred back to Hawaii, this time to the sub-base. In 1940, President Roosevelt had put a ban on families traveling to Hawaiian islands. I guess even in the 40s, they knew there was a problem. But we could not go with my father. But in August of 41, he lifted the ban. And in August of 41, we went on the Lurleen first class back to Hawaii. And it was another dream come true. It was just, it was some place that we loved. It's a different way of life. It was a foreign country. In the few years that we had been away, Hawaii had made a lot of changes. <clears throat> it was becoming Americanized. Sears Roebuck had opened a new store. Not only did they have products from the United States, but in their contract they had to provide Hawaiian things too. And to this day, and a lot of tourists don't realize it, if you go to Japanay <laughs> or Sears and Roebuck, or any of your di local dime stores that are, have uh, our American names, you'll find the greatest departments of Hawaiian things less expensive than in the tourist shops. And it's interesting to see we have Costco. Costco has one of the greatest departments in anywhere in the islands of Hawaiian. Books, history, clothes, everything about it. When we arrived in Hawaii in 1941, we stayed at the Army and Navy YMCA. It was a YW, YMCA, it was the men's, because they had a floor for Navy families. My parents had always rented furnished apartments. It was easier to pack up and move if you didn't have to have furniture, and in the Navy in those days you moved a lot. It wasn't like the Navy today where they let you stay put. My father and I spent many afternoons walking the streets, looking to people we knew, did they have an apartment for rent? There was nothing available in Honolulu, absolutely nothing. And my dad didn't want to live in a Navy housing, but the Navy had just finished building right outside the gates of Pearl Harbor a nice Navy housing. And finally, in desperation, he said, we're going to have to go in a Navy housing. Well, that meant buying furniture, so down to Sears we went. <laughs> and of course, the easy go now, pay later plan was in effect, and my mother, for the first time in her married life, was able to have her own furniture. And I know she must have been thrilled to death. I remember going to the store and picking out what we wanted, and it was just, it was just a thrill. And you know how you feel when you buy something for the first time. It was. I guess the street we lived on is, has been done away with. It's now Nimitz Highway. And we had a two-bedroom apartment, upstairs, downstairs. I was to start high school in September, right after my 15th birthday. So you figure up real quick, you know I'm an old lady. And I was really looking forward to it, except 
In Honolulu, you had to be careful of the school you went to. It had to be an English standard school or you didn't get credit when you came back to the mainland. So they, Roosevelt High School was the English standard school and it was a beautiful school up on the hill. You could look out and see the boats come in on boat day. Today you look out and you can't see a boat, you can't see the water for the high rise in front of it. But you had to take a test. You had to make a recording so that they could see whether you spoke pidgin English or not. Because they didn't want anybody who spoke pidgin. And that's the language of the islands is more or less pidgin English. If you grew up there, you, you left out a lot of your verbs and just <laughs> rattled on. But I took the test, I was approved, and I started high school. High school out there was hard work. School out there was hard work. The Oriental children had their own schools that they went to after ours. The Japanese and the Chinese both not only went to our school, but in the afternoons went to their schools. And you could hear them sing-songing in their native language as you passed one of their schools. So it meant they graded on the curve system. You teachers know how that is. Smartest one gets the highest grade. <laughs> and everybody falls in between from the worst to the best. Well, you really had to study. And by December, we had settled in nicely. My sister Gloria was seven at the time. And she was enrolled in a school near the Navy housing. I had to be bused into, Hawaii, into Honolulu. Saturday night, December the 6th, I was babysitting for neighbors who were attending the big battle of the bands. My mother and dad had gone out with the neighbors next door. The next morning, before 8 o'clock, my sister woke me up. She said, the planes are dropping things. I said, we go wake up daddy. Woke up my father. He went into the bathroom. I have never heard before or since the words that came out of his mouth. <laughs> he cursed a string of things. And he hurried up and got dressed, and he says, we all ran outside. Of course, I think everybody in our little block of houses had run outside, and they're all looking, and one of the men looks up, and he says, oh, look, they've painted our planes up with that red circle for a mock battle. My dad says, you damn fool, that's the Japanese. Can't you see they're dropping bombs? And he said, get your family inside. They're going to start strafing you on the street. And that's exactly what they did. They started strafing the street. After all, it was a Navy housing. You could see the pilots. You could see their faces. They were that low. And you could see the bombs dropping, and you could hear them. It's like a whistle. It starts out, comes down low, and then when it hits, boom. I mean, I think our house ended up the meeting place for our block. All the women and children ended up in our house. We turned the radio on to see what's going on, see if we can hear anything. And the radio was an actual bombing of London. The city, people in town didn't know what was happening at Pearl Harbor. The planes were flying so low over the housing, and they started strafing the people on the ground. You'd hear the rat-a-tat-tat, and my dad went next door and convinced the people to get up out of bed. 
and as they did, the bullets went through their bed. And I know the, my dad said the first thing the man next door had said to him was, oh, Burke, go get a drink, the bottle's in the, in the kitchen. He says, no, get your wife out of bed and get her out of bed now, the Japanese are bombing Pearl Harbor. Recalling that day almost 70 years ago still gives me chills. And I think that's something I'll live with all my life. My dad and all the men quickly went back to the base to help. The Japanese came in three waves that morning. And you know, it's such a shock. You don't know what you're going to do. You stood in the window. Why are you standing in the window? I don't know. But you stood in the window to watch. You'd see the Japanese planes, and you'd see the anti-aircraft puffs. And you'd say, why don't they hit them? Why don't they hit them? Then you'd see a plane get hit, and everybody in the house would yell, oh, good, there's one. There's one going down. Where are our planes? Where are our planes? We didn't realize that our planes on Hickam Field and at Pearl Harbor had all been badly damaged with the first wave of attack. And there had been, there was rumored to have been, the Japanese were hidden in the cane fields around Hickam Field, and they were strafing, they were shooting the young men who were going out to try to get in the planes. But you know, in those days, the planes were all lined up in a row. You hit one, you, you're going to hit all of them, but they're all lined up in a row. It's just like the battleships. They're all in a row. They were very easily hit. You could, yeah, they were sitting ducks. They really were sitting ducks. It was a day of infamy, as President Roosevelt said. It was the day of the sneak attack. And I don't know whether there's ever been a sneak attack like that before or since. Looking up at the planes with the large red circles, you, to this day, it's hard to believe that I stood there and watched it. I said I had a front row seat. I didn't realize that it was something that would last with me forever. There was confusion. There was shock and disbelief that this could be happening in paradise. As I said before, it lasted for three waves of attack. And at noon, they sent army trucks around to pick up the women and children and take them into Honolulu to get them out of the danger zone, because they fully expected the Japanese to come back. And I think had they come back, they probably would have taken the island at that point. But I don't think they realized how much damage they had done. When we got into town, they had um, local families that would come and take as many people as they could into their homes. And I think we stayed into a, a home in the hills for almost a week. We didn't know if my dad was dead or alive. He didn't know where we were. It was just when they thought it was safe to take us back, they picked us up in army trucks. Now, when I say trucks, they're not covered. This is just an open <laughs> bed truck that you had benches along each side that you got in and you sat there and hoped that you weren't going to fall out. We had no way of knowing if Daddy was okay, and he didn't know about us, but things were pretty confused. I don't think the government knew what to do. <laughs> this was something that had never happened to America before. Blackouts were declared immediately from dusk till dawn. And if you've never lived in blackout conditions, 
it's pretty miserable. My dad couldn't stand the blackouts because you had guards, if the light shone through, if you lit a cigarette and it shone through, the guards came around and told you not to light it. And he, he was not home often anymore. He was on duty 50% of the time. He rigged up a place in the uh, pantry with a blanket and rigged up a light and he would sit in there and smoke and read the paper until it was like a sauna bath and until he couldn't stand it anymore. And you'd hear in the night, you'd hear, halt, halt or I'll shoot if someone was on the Navy housing grounds. And then you'd, sometimes you'd hear the shots ring out. And I know at one time there was a Japanese man that was going around knocking on the door saying, now what do you think about what we're doing to you? Now what do you think about what we're doing to you? It was a scary time. It was a scary time for anybody, no matter how young or how old. It was something totally different. We, my dad received a notice asking if he wanted his family to be sent back to the States. And he had decided with my mother, yes, he wanted us out of the islands. He didn't want us to stop in California where we'd lived the last off and on in Hawaii and Honolulu for 10 years. He wanted us to go back to his home of record, which was Ohio. He said it was safer to be in the middle of the country. We got a note, we received our notice on Christmas Day and at 10 o'clock in the morning, between 10 and 12, and we had two hours notice to pack what we could carry in one suitcase. Now, I could carry a suitcase, my mother could carry a suitcase, but my seven-year-old sister couldn't carry a suitcase. So we packed what we could carry. They came around in the buses, or the trucks, <laughs> and took us to the Aloha Tower to board the Lurling, which the Navy had taken over. We did not leave Christmas Day. They were just boarding the ship, and I think trying to get the destroyers. They had a destroyer escort for us. They had never tried an evacuation, and this was a first. They had too many people on the ship to begin with. We ended up two families in a room for four. My mother had two children. That was three of our family, and it was three of the other family. And we were down in a hold on the bottom of the ship, six people in a cabin that had four cots. Salt water in all the taps. There was no running water of fresh water. You took a shower, you took it in salt water. Any of you ever tried to wash in salt water? You ever done your hair in salt water? I see a few men shaking their heads. Doesn't, doesn't wash very well, does it? <laughs> we arrived in San Francisco on New Year's Eve, and the teenagers and I decided to go to a movie. The movie was, the feature was, the actual attack to Pearl Harbor. It was the newsreel. You know, in those days, you got newsreels with the movies. So it was the actual attack to Pearl Harbor. But one thing that was very noticeable in Honolulu was after the attack, the Japanese did not wear their native costumes anymore. But every other native came out in their costumes. You know, it's sometimes hard to tell them apart. You know, you're Korean, you're Chinese, you're Japanese. You have to really 
look close to be able to, and be around them a lot before you can tell them apart. So believe me, they all got their native uniforms on. We had made an attempt to prepare for Christmas because my sister still believed in Santa Claus. And mother sent me into town one day. It was really a strange sight because all along the road were boxes that they had built for caskets because they needed so many that everybody that was a woodworker of any kind made their boxes for caskets. But we, we got into San Francisco. Mother had made clothes for my sister and I, so she knew it was going to be cold in Ohio. She didn't have anything for herself. We, the Red Cross met the ship, and anybody who didn't look like they were dressed warm enough was sent someplace to pick up clothes. A lot of the children didn't even have shoes, the little children. They never wore shoes. They were always barefoot, so that was... We stayed in San Francisco for about a week until we got our train tickets. You had to just wait your turn. As I said, they didn't know what to do with everybody. <laughs> it was a new experience. We took the train. It was interesting. My sister had never seen snow. She saw snow in between the cars. She thought it was like velvet. We arrived in the little town of Wheelersburg, Ohio. The train station was no longer, they had a stop for the train, but there was nobody there anymore. They had done away with the stop. They pulled a special stop for us. Here we are down by the river, put off the train with our one suitcase apiece. No way to get up the five miles into the town. And my mother saw this old truck coming by, and she waved him down, and it happened to be somebody she knew from her childhood. She had grown up there. Her father had been the family doctor, and lived there all, she'd lived there all her life. And he took us in his truck, loaded us up in his truck, an old Model T, and took us up through the burg to my grandmother's house. Well, as we passed the one house that my father's family lived in, he, he didn't realize that that was my father, and that's who mother had married. And he said, oh, old man Burke died the other day. <laughs> that's the way we found out my father had died. And we get to my grandmother's. There's no running water. The well had gone dry, even. And she carried her water from the upstairs apartment next door. Well, my sister and I had never lived like this. We didn't know what it was to use a outside plumbing. And this was, a, this was a modern house. The outside plumbing was not exactly outside. You went through a big storage room, and it was attached onto the storage room, and it was a two-holer. And the toilet paper was a Montgomery Ward catalog. Fifteen years old, I, this was not my, my idea of the kind of life I wanted to live. Well, about June, the furniture caught up with us, and my mother went looking for a house to live in. And she found that on one of the streets, not far from my grandmother's, there was a little house behind a bigger house that they had, nice little white house, very nice, just three rooms. It was perfect for us. 
They didn't tell her it had been the chicken coop that they had remodeled into a rental. Can you imagine what it is for a high school girl to go to school? <laughs> she lives in the chicken house, and her name becomes Pearl because she came from Pearl Harbor, and she was a refugee. You know, I feel sorry for some of these kids who come to the United States. <laughs> At least I had the advantage that I was an American. <laughs> but it was, it was tough. And all I wanted to do was get out of high school by this point. Uh, I was in the 10th grade. I didn't have to study the rest of the 10th grade because I had already done all the work in Hawaii. All I had to do was rewrite the papers and turn them in because I had already done all the work that they were doing. My mother was a school teacher. She knew everybody on the school board, and my dad had been stationed in Norfolk, and she was coming to Norfolk with my sister, and I said, no, I want to stay and finish school. So she made arrangements, and they decided that I had enough credits that if I'd take a couple of after-school subjects, they'd let me graduate after the 11th grade. And fortunately, that's what I was able to do, and I came to Norfolk in 1943. And it was a Friday the 13th of August, and I thought Norfolk was the hellhole of the world. <laughs> I thought Wheelersburg was bad. <laughs> Norfolk didn't like sailors. And they did have signs that said, sailors and dogs keep off the grass. The one I vividly remember to this day was the apartment house that's on Willowwood Drive in Granby Street. And that apartment house was brand new, and they had a big sign up there. <laughs> and then we had streetcars in those days. You went downtown in a streetcar. And um, it, was, it was a new experience. I went to work at the Naval Base, Building 143, and worked in Navy personnel. Loved my job, but that was not what I wanted to do with my life. And. I stayed, stayed there until after I married and had children and left the naval base, and somehow I got involved in travel. But Norfolk is different. I always thought as soon as I made enough money, I was leaving. I was going back to California. I wouldn't live in California for anything. I look, it's an asphalt jungle. Norfolk has improved. You know, it's a nice place to live. It really is a beautiful place. I would say that because I've loved it so much, I've stayed so long, and I guess this will be my last home. Uh, I still travel a lot, but this is the place I like to stay, and Norfolk is wonderful. This morning, when I looked at my emails, I had an email that really tied in with tonight's speak, speaking. And I ran it off because I had not seen this before. And maybe some of you have heard it. It's about Admiral Nimitz. And this is a man who was waiting for the tour boat at the Arizona recently. I don't know how recently, but it's not too long ago. And he had about 30 minutes, and they had just missed the ferry. And he went into a small gift shop to kill time. In the gift shop, I purchased a small book entitled Reflections on Pearl Harbor by Admiral Chester Nimitz. Sunday, December the 7th, 1941, Admiral Chester Nimitz was attending a concert in Washington, D.C. 
he was paged and told there was a phone call from him, for him. When he answered the phone, it was President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He told Admiral Nimitz that he, Nimitz, would now be the commander of the Pacific Fleet. Admiral Nimitz flew to Hawaii to assume command of the Pacific Fleet. He landed at Pearl Harbor on Christmas Eve, 1941. There was such a spirit of despair, dejection, and defeat, you would have thought the Japanese had already won the war. On Christmas Day, 1941, Admiral Nimitz was given a boat tour of the destruction wrought on Pearl Harbor by the Japanese. Big sunken battleships and Navy vessels cluttered the waters everywhere you looked. As the tour boat returned to dock, the young helmsman of the boat asked, well, Admiral, what do you think after seeing all this destruction? Admiral Nimitz's reply shocked everyone within the sound of his voice. Admiral Nimitz said, the Japanese made three of the biggest mistakes an attack force could ever make or God was taking care of America. Which do you think it was? Shocked and surprised, the young helmsman asked, what do you mean by saying the Japanese made the three biggest mistakes an attack force ever made? Nimitz explained, mistake number one, the Japanese attacked on Sunday morning. Nine out of every ten crewmen of those ships were ashore on leave. If those same ships had been lured to sea and been sunk, we would have lost 38,000 men instead of 3,800. Mistake number two. When the Japanese saw all those battleships lined in a row, they got so carried away sinking those battleships, they never once bombed our dry docks opposite those ships. If they had destroyed our dry docks, we would have had to tow every one of those ships to America to be repaired. As it is now, the ships are in shallow water and can be raised. One tug can pull them over to the dry docks and we can have them repaired and at sea by the time we could have towed them to America. And I already have crews ashore anxious to man those ships. Mistake number three. Every drop of fuel in the Pacific theater of war is on top of the ground in storage tanks five miles away over the hill. One attack plane could have strafed those tanks and destroyed our fuel supply. That's why I say the Japanese made three of the biggest mistakes an attack force could make, or God was taking care of America. I've never forgotten what I read in that little book. It is still an inspiration as I reflect upon it. In jest, I might suggest that because Admiral Nimitz was a Texan born and raised in Fredericksburg, Texas, he was a born optimist. But any way you look at it, Admiral Nimitz was able to see a silver lining in a situation and circumstances where everyone else saw only despair and defeatism. President Roosevelt had chosen the right man for the right job. 
We desperately needed a leader that could see silver linings in the midst of the clouds of dejection, despair, and defeat. There is a reason that our national motto is, in God we trust.